that live here every day. Right. Um, what is your take on that, and how is that even probably rooted right. in systemic racism? Right. Um, practices that has been continuing and going on here, just not in Nashville, but just Tennessee as a state. Well, on the one hand, look, I mean, I, there are things about the new Nashville that I love and things about it that I hate. Okay. Just like there are things about the old Nashville that I loved and things about it that I hated. Um, it's not like the old Nashville wasn't systemically racist and we just became that. Right. And it's not like the new Nashville is suddenly fantastic and we weren't fantastic before. There were always great things about this town. Um, but the problem is, just like any other place in America, we are rooted in a society that has always functioned principally for the needs of the haves versus the have-nots, and that has played out both economically and racially, yeah. um, and a combination of those two. And so when you become the it city, when you become a city people want to go to, the, the developers are looking to cater to certain types of people. Um, the local officials are looking to cater to certain types of people. So we're going to cut sweetheart deals for sports teams. We're not going to do that for working class and lower income folks. Uh, at the same time, I don't know anybody living in a poor community that wants the community to stay poor. Right. So, so the problem with gentrification is not that the neighborhood gets more affluent or more money. The question is, why do y'all just put the money in there mm. when certain people discover our neighborhood? Right. Right. Why is it? Because I mean, I grew up at a time when that thing we call 12 South. Yeah. That was just that was just Granny White. Yeah. That was just between eighth and 12th. And and like 70 percent of the people who lived there that I went to school with were black. Yeah. And now it is, you know, seven hundred fifty thousand dollar houses, million dollar houses, right. overwhelmingly white. They reopened the school over there, which they had closed for years because you had all these white families like, we need a school for our little babies. Let's open it up. Well, black <laughs> folk needed a school, but y'all didn't want a school then. So that's the price. It's not that gentrification is a weird word because yeah. the actual increasing affluence or capital in a neighborhood, everybody wants that. Right. But why does it only come when certain people arrive? Right. And so can we figure out a way? I think this is the challenge for Nashville and every other city like us, how do we figure out how to benefit development in a way that protects both the, 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 the financial interests of people that have been in the neighborhood for a minute? So if you're on fixed income and you've been in, it could be 12 South, it could be East Nashville, it could be any neighborhood that's gentrifying, and you've been there for 20 years, yeah. and you're a homeowner, but now you can't pay the property taxes because the values have skyrocketed because all these affluent folks who used to flee the city came back. Right. Their parents fled, now y'all came back, brought your money with you, and now I can't afford to live here, so where do I move? Or if I'm renting, and now the rents go up, now I can't afford to rent. So there ought to be, there's gotta be some kind of policy right. that we can think about that would say, look, if you've been in a neighborhood for a minute before it got hip, before it got to be the place to be, we're gonna freeze your rent or we're gonna freeze your property taxes at a level that only goes up for like the rate of inflation maybe, right? right? As opposed to going up 10% or 30% or whatever it is. Now, if you're a newcomer, you should be the one to bear the cost of gentrification, right? right? If you just moved in, you bear the extra cost on property taxes, you ba bear the higher rent. Cause that way we could, you'd still have some transition, mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be this rapid transition where the neighborhood totally flips and changes right. culturally and in every other way. Uh, I think Nashville still has, a, and this may not be the case, but several years ago, Nashville, I think our zoning rules, for instance, say that for every unit that's built of, of like apartment or condo space, and you see them going up everywhere, right? We've got more, we have more cranes, I think, than any metropolitan area in the United States. 
building condos and apartments. For every unit, you have to have two parking spaces. Mm. Now, I want you to think about what that means, right? right? If, you, if, you, if, if For every unit, you gotta have two parking spaces. Not only does that encourage everybody to have a car, which congests the traffic, and we all know we just got rated the worst commute in the United mm -hmm. States, uh, which is saying a lot, because yeah. you still got Atlanta and Dallas and Houston, and we're like, no, nah, forget y'all. Like, we're, we're way worse than y'all. Right. But, but when you have two, two parking spots for every unit, that means you got to build garages, right. you got to build parking lots, and that means that's less space for people to live in. Right. So when you have less space for people to live, what happens? The rent for everybody else goes up. Right, and so it makes it impossible for working class people to live in the city. Right. Now they got to move 35 minutes out, 40 minutes out, come into work. Right, this is, we've seen this all over the country. You see it in, in major metropolitan areas out west. You've seen mm -hmm. it for 20 years out there, and now we're starting to see it. So we've got to figure out a way to encourage development, but development that serves the least of us, yeah. rather than just the, the most affluent and the newcomers. And that can be done, yeah. but it requires a certain degree of, of foresight and, and, and wisdom yeah. that I think sometimes we lack. I want, yeah, Megan, you got, a, you got another question? Please, again, I, do. I don't see nobody come up to the mic. Don't be scared, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's okay. We can get this question and then we'll toss it over to our audience. But I okay. have a question on YouTube, uh, where we are live, from Intuitive Heart Healing Center. And this question's for you, Tim. Given black women's key role in your upbringing, what are your thoughts on direct funding for them by Fund Black Women? It must be an organization that you've heard of. Um, well, I think, I think any opportunity that we have, whether it's that organization or any other, to figure out ways to steer capital and to steer resources to black women leaders whether that's business leaders, whether that's community organizers, nonprofit organizations led by black women, educators uh, who are black women, I think we should take it. And I think that, that we ought to be investigating ways to not, and not only that, we ought to be investigating ways to, to spend our money. I'm talking about, I'm gonna say our money, I mean white folks' money. Figuring out how to spend our money with black owned businesses, uh, seeding black run nonprofits, particularly nonprofits run by black women, figuring out ways to, um, redirect resources individually. Now, having said that, I think it's also important that we remember that black women are not a charity and black folks are not a charity. So the idea that it's enough to steer our individual resources to black folks misses the larger issue, which is until we have systemic reparation for the damage of white supremacy, we're not really doing anything. Right. Until we until we actually I mean, the idea of like because you will hear I've heard plenty of white folks say like I'm going to give this much money to this black family down the road. OK, that's cool. But that's a charity impulse. Solidarity means that we ask for an economy of scale, which says here's the damage. We know how to calculate it. We need public policy that acknowledges the damage and pays reparation for that. That's what we I mean, we rebuilt our enemies after World War Two. Legit rebuilt our enemies, spent millions, billions of dollars to rebuild the people we had just been bombing. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, giving housing subsidy loans, uh, subsidized housing loans to white families to build the middle class. That's what the FHA and VA loans were from the 30s to the early 60s. We did that, and 97% of those benefits went to white families. There would be no white middle class without government intervention. But we don't do that for black folks? How is that? Well, that is because we don't acknowledge this, this damage or we think of it as individual damage. Right. So we ought to support and fund black-led organizations. We ought to put our money in, in, in black institutions and we should be pushing for public policy that acknowledges the systemic harm because the harm is not individual, it is right. systemic. Right. And it can only be repaired that way. 
Equity costs money. Yeah, it does. It's not cheap. It's, <laughs> it's not, not cheap. cheap. Right, right. Got a question right here. Wagwan family, look, my name is Jaffe, right? So I got two questions for you. Uh, and great job, by the way. I love that part when you said that we should honor uh, black women because of their infinite wisdom. Uh, it's crazy that we need a white man to say that, right? Because I know some black brothers who don't even want to show their love for black women, and that's sure. even crazier, sure. right? Sure. Um, and it don't matter who you love, real talk, you feel me? I just feel like if you black, you should love black women in general. Sure. But anyway, back to the question. First, I got two questions. The first question is, and it's a little bit of like a statement, like I feel like we have enough evidence that racism exists. Right. But when a situation like the neo-Nazis happens, it's almost like a sh people are in shock. Yeah. How do we improve our approach to the response of racism in 2024 as individuals, as a state, and overall globally? The second question is, do black and brown people benefit from racism or slavery? Hmm. Well, I'll do the second part first, because it's the easier part. <laughs> Yes, uh, I, that's, I, that's, not, that's not a tough question. I will have to disagree with brother. Yeah, I will disagree with brother DeSantis uh, and and his folks. I don't believe there are any benefits from enslavement or racism. Really? For the Can't I know I know that's, that's a, a controversial that's a statement. Right, 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 right. I know that's a, that was a hard one. That's a, um, that's that's that's, that's um, calculus. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, the 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 first part is trickier because how do we improve our response or our, or our reaction? Um, I think I think number one is we improve it by not being shocked. Part of the problem, right, is that when we get shocked, we, you know, and this happens every time. George Floyd happened and folks, that was everybody, uh, no, not everybody, black folks didn't say it. White folks said, this isn't America. What the <laughs> hell, this is America. That, like, that, that is an everyday thing. That's not, that wasn't, that wasn't shocking to, I don't know any black folks that were like, oh my God, they killed that man on the street. Yeah. But there were a lot of white folks like, I can't believe that happened. Now, on the one hand, look, if you're, if you're being shocked, we'll send you into the streets to protest. Okay, all right. But then, well, but here we are, right. three and a half years later, and folks apparently moved on, I guess. Some people have moved on. Um, so stop being surprised that the whole history of, of America is this history. Right. And which is why they don't want to teach it. Right. It's rooted. Because it's they don't want us to understand that. The reason that they want to pull these books off the shelves is because you had a lot of young white folks that were starting to follow the wisdom of black people and listen to And it was like, we can't have that. We have to pull these books out. Because if you know the history, you, you, you think about young people, children, right, have this innate sense of justice. Right. Children have an innate sense of what is fair and what is correct and what is right. It's only later when we get older that we wring all that out of us right. in the name of paying our mortgage and paying our bills and, yeah. and getting ahead of other people. K kids don't think about that. So you wanna get people while they're young. Right. So part of the way we have to respond, look, the, the thing about them pulling these books out, there was a great article in the, either the New York Times or the Washington Post last week that was talking about black families that in the, in the midst of this assault on real history have decided, listen, we're not gonna wait around for y'all to teach it. Right. We're just going to teach it. Right. We're going to do it in our homes, in our right. churches, in our nonprofit organizations. We're going to do it on the weekends. Right. It'll be an extracurricular thing. We're going to teach our children what y'all don't want to teach them. White parents should be doing the same thing. There's nothing that says that white parents have to rely on what the, what the K-12 schools feed their children. Right. I wouldn't have. Right. Thank God my parents didn't. Because, like I said, I wouldn't have learned any of the stuff that I knew from the schools I attended. Right. But my parents taught me things. Yeah. So we have to take, it, it's a little bit of that. You know, like when you wait around for the schools, if you trust the educational system to be anti-racist, you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> what? If, if, you, if you trust institutions 
to, to actually challenge racism and racial inequality, you haven't been paying attention. Right. So you have to do a lot of that on your own. A lot of that is that personal stuff we have to do in our own family. Right. So I think that's part of the response we have to have. We got, we got a question online, Megan? We do, and then we can toss it over to the yeah. audience questions in studio. Uh, the question is, didn't know about last week's neo-Nazi march until afterwards. They have a right to march. What should we have done? <laughs> Man, it's a hard one. I don't know what I could advocate <laughs> without getting in trouble. Um, yeah, there's, there's many things that could have been done. A lot of things could have been done. <laughs> uh, well, look, here's the thing. I suppose it's fair to say they have a right to march. I suppose you have a right to stand in the middle of Central Park and yell racial slurs. But if you do that, it makes you a horrible human being. And the rest of us have the right to tell you that you're a horrible human being. So what we needed on Broadway when they were doing that was a lot more people calling them who they were. Yeah. And we had one guy, I don't know if y'all have seen the videos, I've seen yeah. one guy, and he, was a, and he was like Australian, I think. I don't know, I mean, I mean he, his accent, yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. from his accent, he sounded Australian, <laughs> I don't know for sure, what, but he, he definitely, you know, wasn't some, he didn't sound like a local Nashvilleian. I needed, I needed to hear a local, maybe he was, but, you know, maybe it was Keith Urban. I don't know who it was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't know, Nicole Kidman might have been yelling at it. I don't know. But, like, but I, we need some people, I need some people that sound like they just came out of Tootsie's yeah. to yell at those guys. That's what I need. Now, I mean, I could argue that, you know, some beer bottles could have been thrown, but, I mean, I'm not advocating violence. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it could have happened. Yeah. And if it had happened, I wouldn't have shed a tear. Right. Uh, but, but no, I think, I think we, have to, we have to be as forceful. The fact that people have the freedom of speech, people sometimes, I think, react to that by saying that, therefore, we should somehow not shout people down. But my freedom of speech says I get to say whatever I want to you. Yeah. And if I'm down there when that happens, I need to have more than one guy. Yeah yelling at guys that are they're marching with swastika flags this isn't even like are they nazis i don't know like even the local press was like 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 you know put nazis in quote marks what's the quote mark it's a swastika like 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 what is the debate like is it this is not they're not pretending to be this is not yeah. cosplay yeah. this is not the renaissance fair right this is this is these Real guys life, are yeah. straight up nazis and and we're still acting like they're not or oh they're just they're idiots or whatever, and and yeah, they're well, staged. They're yeah, agents. Yeah, you know, well, they think they're yeah, federal yeah, agents, agents, right? Yeah. Of course, of course. Yeah. Um, and so part of it is we need more people. I, I need, I need. If if you've got a group of people marching in your town yelling, deportation will save the nation, which is what they were yelling, or there will be blood, which is that group's favorite line. There will be blood. Well, if there is, it's not all going to be ours. Yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. Like you know. That, that there, there might be, but it won't just be ours. And I need somebody to be able to stand up and say, because like I said, our, our, our grandparents knew how to deal with Nazis, and I, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. And we apparently forgot. I wanted to ask you a question about uh, DEI. It's yeah. a hot topic right now. I have a lot of conversations with people about it, and yeah. uh, the people that get the most frustrated when I'm trying to explain the concept are, are white folks. So I guess really? it's a, a two-part question. <laughs> yeah. um, why do you think white folks get so upset about yeah. DEI? And yeah. the second part is how would you, as a white person, explain the importance of something of these programs like that? So it's actually a really interesting question, and I have, a, I have an easy answer for it, but um, it's, you know, I mean, the easy answer would be, well, they, they get upset about DEI because it challenges their 
position and their power, and that might be true for some people, but I think actually there's another answer, and I've actually worked as an expert witness on a couple of lawsuits, I'm working on one now, where you know, some disgruntled white person thinks they've been victimized by a DEI policy, and I'm being called in to explain why they're wrong, basically. And what I have learned in my 30 years plus of doing this work and from the social science literature is that there are a couple of relatively innocent reasons. In other words, it's not just that they're racist or it's not just that they're wanting to preserve their position. That might be it. But it's also because, look, to be white in America, for the most part, with exceptions duly noted, but to be white generally is to never have to really have race be hyper-relevant in your life. So you're working in an environment where you're not having to think about it much, you don't have a lot of black and brown supervisors, you're not being asked to think about your positionality relative to other people, and all of a sudden, in this era, what happens? You've got people saying, you know what, you should be thinking about this. Now, if I've never had to think about it, and now you ask me to think about it, and race becomes what social scientists call salient to you for the first time, it's gonna be jarring. To black and brown folks, it's been salient since they came out their mama's womb, right? So it's always been an issue, but for white folks, it's like, what? You're asking me to learn, you're asking me to learn calculus at 30. You know, you're asking me to learn a language I've never spoken, so I get it. That can be hard, and it can be scary. The second thing is that to be white, according to the literature again, and the research on this, is to really fundamentally believe that we live in a meritocracy, right? Mm -hmm. To believe that you know individual effort is all it takes and, and, and anybody can make it if they just try hard. Now, understand something. That is the secular gospel of the country. That is Genesis 1-1 in the Bible of Americanism. Anybody can make it if they try hard. Well, if I believe that and I never question it, I never interrogate how true, that, it's a lovely statement, right? It's lovely to say that that's our goal. Yeah. But if you believe it's not a goal, it's our actual reality, then of course, what are you gonna think? Well, you're gonna think that whatever the current structure is in your company or your organization, whatever the hierarchy is, whoever does and does not work there, whoever lives or doesn't live in your neighborhood, you're gonna assume it's natural. The people that run things run things because they're just better. And the people that aren't in those positions must be inferior because if they were equal or better than me, they'd already have these jobs. So, right, so if I believe in meritocracy as a thing, any effort to diversify the institution or make it more equitable strikes me by definition as discriminatory against me. By definition, it strikes me as you're lowering the quality. Well, of course, because you think that this thing you've already got is about merit. Because of course you do. Because white folks have had the luxury of believing that we got our jobs based on our, just our hard work. Not the old boys networks, not connections, not somebody putting in a good word, not you know, superior resources in K-12. So if I have been protected from thinking about race and questioning meritocracy, then anything that asks me to think about the injustice of the system strikes me as this bizarre kind of anti-white, you hate white people kind of thing, when that's not at all what's going on, but that's, that's the context, I think, for why. Um, and so what I try to explain to people is, listen, like, at the most basic level, I mean, we could have a long philosophical conversation about why DEI is important, but at the most basic level, here's the deal. And I know those boys down on Broadway, those Nazis are real upset about it, but it doesn't matter what they think, because it's not gonna change. Um, this country is not gonna be majority white for long. That's just a reality. I know they, they, they think they can make it so by deporting people, building walls. But here's the deal. The median age of white women in America, y'all, is 46. How many babies you think 46-year-old women are having? 
not that many. So if the, I'm, just, I'm just saying like the age of white folks, like that ship has sailed, y'all. The idea that we're going to reverse the demographic change in this country just by changing the immigration pattern, it's got nothing to do with immigration. We've had a net outflow of immigrants over the last 20 years, not influx, outflow, a net loss of people over the last 20 years in, in, in that 20-year period. So it's not about immigration. It's about birth rates, and white folks are just too damn old. So, so the median age for Latinas is 29. The median age for black women is 35. So your country is going to become more black and brown. You don't like it, then y'all the ones that need to move to Finland or wherever you want to go. Because the reality is this country is going to be multiracial. Whether it's going to be a democracy or not is up to us. But the idea that you're going to somehow stem the... T no, so if you can't change it, if it's going to be black and brown, then your obligation, if you want to have a functional country... If you want Social Security to be there for you, you better have some workers who are paying into that system to keep it afloat. If you want the economy to function, you've you got to have workers. Who are those people going to be? The babies you're not making? Mm -hmm. No, they're going to be black and brown folks. So you better make sure that black and brown folk have opportunity because if they don't have opportunity, you die. Literally, you die. So DEI or DIE, it's your choice. Like You can do one or the other. But if you don't have DEI, the country's not going to survive. And so... Look, we, we, we got about nine minutes for questions, so if you can keep it to one question and be pretty, pretty quick, and then I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. Absolutely. Tim. I'm sorry. Be, quick. I, 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 <laughs> be a little I, bit quick. You know, because you're on a roll. You're, you, you, you're killing it, but you know what I'm saying? We, we want to make sure we can get all the to, questions. I don't but I just get carried away. I apologize. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, my name's Gary. I work at a nonprofit, and I'm going to shorten my question. So how do I tell my white coworkers to take a back seat to the participants that we we're, we uh, we provide a service, and it's 99% black people. Yeah. How do I tell them to take a back seat and let the black people do the communicating and the the hard like being the liaison between? Because it seems like they come from two different worlds. They do, and I, I think I think the challenge, you know, for for me when I worked with nonprofits as a community organizer and in New Orleans working with groups that were really centered in the black community. What they did with us is they required us, and I appreciate them doing it, they required us to have undoing racism training, they required us to have these conversations before we could even work for the organization. I think that's a really valuable thing for all nonprofits to do. If you serve black and brown people, everybody in that group, including black and brown folks, not just the white folks, because black and brown folks can manifest white supremacy. Black and brown folks can manifest all of that internalized oppression. Indoctrination. Everybody needs to go through that kind of a, of a discussion so they can have a grounding in understanding when to step up and when to step back. Um, so I think it's, you, you can say it yourself, but it's even more powerful if the organization imposes as a requirement, as a condition of employment, look, y'all, we got to go through this because these are the people that we serve. And if we're going to serve these folks, we got to be in community with these folks. And in order to do that, you have to be prepared to understand how sometimes, with the best of intentions, you manifest oppressive behaviors, you know? Uh, yes, my name is Charles, and I wanted to ask, your parents sent you to this school when you were a very small child. So basically what looks like to be, they broke down the CRT training for you as, as a small child. Yeah. We know that the powers that be basically play the long game. Yeah. So since they play the long game and they're projecting this out 20, 30 years, yeah. how do we offset that in the community mm -hmm. so that what they're doing, what they're pushing through right now, we can counteract that. Right, that's a great question. I mean, number one is always be, being, being prepared before they do what they're gonna do. See, part of what I think caught us, caught us up a little short after George Floyd and after the uprising. You know, we had 20, 20 million people in the street in the course of about a year, uh, nine months to a year, and it was amazing. 
And I think a lot of people, a lot of us got carried away thinking, man, the moment has come. Well, I also know people that were activists in the 60s that thought 1968, the revolution was getting ready to happen. Well, here we are, 55 years, 50, almost 50, 56 years later, and it didn't. And so we have to realize every time that there is progress, and, and, and Carol Anderson, brilliant scholar at Emory University, writes about this in her book, White Rage. She talks about how every, every move forward, particularly for black folks, and I think you could extend this to people of color more broadly, but every move for black folks has always been met with this pushback and backlash. If we had been prepared for that, and not got carried away with the, with the headiness of the moment. Like, oh man, look, we're all in the street. It's gonna change. Well, yeah, some things did change. Don't get me wrong. Systemically, we started talking differently. The language changed. All of a sudden, the language of systemic racism became mainstream. That is not nothing. So, so we should take a, like a half a victory lap for moving the narrative, right? But the problem is the other side was like, yeah, I'll, I'll see your narrative and I will raise you a ban on all CRT and a ban on DEI and a ban, and now we got rid of affirmative action and, and we're gonna keep taking away voting rights and making it harder to vote. So I just think we, we gotta just know the history and understand that these things come in these cycles. If you know what's coming, you can prepare for it. But I think the problem was, I feel like in some ways, we just thought like, oh, we got them now. Yeah. It's like, but do you know what country you live in? <laughs> You've got nothing yet, because these people haven't gone away. They just reorganized. The Confederates were defeated for a minute, but I swear to God, I'm not sure they lost that war. Yeah. You know? All right, so we, we, we got about five minutes left, so, okay. Tim. I'm trying. <laughs> that was shorter than my normal answer. Hi, Tim. Hi. I'm Carrie. This is my sister, Carmen, so I hope she can hey, answer your question, too. Okay. Um, so it was really interesting what you were saying about Nashville and Memphis and kind of how they hate us. Um, and yeah. I think back to um, what was it, the 2020 election where I credit Stacey Abrams for really yeah. kind of changing the tide in, in Georgia. And for I sure. would love to see that here. Sure. Um, so what are your thoughts on the notion of countervailing power and how can we as anti-racists mm -hmm. um, leverage that to change public policy? So what you were talking about with DEI and voting rights and taking away affirmative action, how can we as like a group of people really tactically make an influence. Well, in 30 seconds. Yeah, uh, because <laughs> I, I want to get to everybody rest of the question. Look, all I can say is we, we can we can follow Stacey Abrams model a little bit here. It's not as easy because the demographics are not as favorable, perhaps, as they are in Georgia on the whole and not as favorable here, let's say, as they are in Atlanta. But I think between Memphis and Nashville and maybe even Chattanooga increasingly, we have enough sort of people that are committed to a different way of doing business in this state and a different way of doing politics that if we start to, to, to demonstrate our collective commitment to that and we start to have civic leaders and business leaders who stand up and demand a different politic and refuse to 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 go along with these measures um, then I think we have a long game going back to that issue of long game versus short game the short game is it's gonna be very hard when you got five senators in the Democratic Party or whatever it is you know and we have this super majority or whatever else but part of it too is electing different people and part of it is 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 saying if you're not happy with who's running the state right now then we need to start running people for office and we need to start running people for, for city council and school board. All these people on the right are taking over. This is what they did 25 years ago. They committed to taking over local and state government. And a lot of other people with a D in front of their name were just focused on getting the presidency. And I understand the value of the presidency, particularly right now, but I'm also gonna tell you, if you let them take over the state and local government, the president doesn't mean anything. Right. And Congress doesn't. So we have to start running people for office that are about something. Uh, and I think if we do that, we'll see some folks win that we might not expect to win. I know that's more than 30 seconds. Sorry, but done. 
Moving on. Go, go ahead. Thank Hi, you, Tim. I'm, I'm Carmen. Uh, so I've been working in tech for a while, yeah. and in 2022, I'm sure as you know, there's been a huge influx of layoffs um, that have just happened all around the country. Yeah. Um, there have been a lot of conversations around, is DEI dead? Um, Google and Meta in 2023 have cut their diversity programs and their teams significantly. Yeah. Um, these teams that they put in place during George Floyd times to just yeah. kind of save face. Um, but they're cutting these programs and cutting them by 90%. Yeah. Um, and they're spending a lot of that money and forwarding it to AI now, which can't even identify black and brown people, by right. the way. Um, right. Right. So these huge companies are leading the march to other for other companies to follow suit. Yeah. Um, and this you know, impacts Nashville and our corporate businesses. So um, what can we do to counteract that? I mean, I think we just have to challenge the, the, the ethos of tech. 30 seconds. The ethos of tech. Of all the industries out there, tech is tech, the tech folks are the ones who are most bought in to that notion of meritocracy. They just honestly believe there's this objective way to rank 335 million Americans from 1 to 335 million. We have to be challenging that very underlying notion because the reason they, they can get rid of DEI efforts is because they never believed in them anyway. Yeah. That was all PR for them. I mean, I did, I did a talk at Google like 9, 10 years ago. Google's a big company. I went to their campus. We had about 20 people in the room. And 17 of them were black, you know. So I mean, what is I mean, what does that tell you? Like th th this was not a group of people. They didn't care about that. Their thing was, can you code? Right. Like, well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, like I told you, I can even do calculus. I can't do chemistry. I can't do anything. I can run my mouth, but y'all aren't clearly don't care about that because you didn't show up for my talk. So we have to challenge the underlying logic of of tech, which is. Oh, technology can solve every problem. So they think AI can solve every problem. They think an algorithm can solve every problem. They think that if we have uh, 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 you know, artificial intelligence and or we've got programs that can tell you who's going to reoffend in the criminal justice system, well, the, all that stuff is based on the data that you fed it. So if you feed it biased data, it's junk in and it's junk out, right? Yeah. But they just think, well, every solution has a technological problem. And we'll just tech our way out of it instead of actually acting like human beings and figuring out ethical solutions for the problems that we have. We're so bought into STEM that we're forgetting about what I call mesh, right? which, is, which is media literacy, ethics, sociology, and history. Yeah. We don't care about mesh education. We're focused on STEM. I know STEM is important, but so is media literacy, ethics, sociology, and history. If you don't know those things, then the science that you do know will misserve you. Right. The, the technology that you do use will destroy you. Even the math you won't understand. Like if you don't understand the, the sociological context of that stuff, uh, you become a victim of your own technological brilliance. And that's where we're at right now. And Sorry. So, Sorry. Th thanks to Tim. We're out of time. Uh, <laughs> but, but I want I want I want to if you, if you all can just get straight to the question. And, and I'll you, just nod. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say yes. And so, and then we, if we get straight to the question, yes. and then Tim can, if you can. I promise. If you can abbreviate I a little bit. I promise. You know? Fortune You're killing cookie, it. You're Fortune fire. Fortune version. Fortune but man. Version. I promise. Okay, okay, okay. All right. Thank you. Sorry. My name is Zaya. I promise I'll make this quick. So do you think that we make, like, this too much of a literal black and white issue? Because, I mean, I've like I've been to study abroad, yeah. and I went to England, and being black there is completely different from being black here. Right. So do you think that most of the issues here stem from a class problem, like coming from the top where there really is real racism and trickles down to the bottom, affecting the lower class communities. Like, 
you know, there's not just black and white. Like, white sure. doesn't just mean you are a literal white person. Like, sure. there's Germans, Italians. Like, yeah. there's so many different types of people, and sure. we kind of condense it into just this one mush, and then we kind of just like, oh, they're bad. We villainize everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, like, acknowledging that there's not just black and white people, sure. but there are also other people who are affected by these issues. So, of course. yeah, do we make it too much of a black she and white She said she was going to be quick, Tim. She All lied. Right. She lied. I, I, I she lied. But, but I, 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 need you to, I need you to be quick. I'll be quick. I'll be quick. Look, there are a lot of different groups and a lot of different folks of color who experience racism and white supremacy in this country, but I think anti-blackness is the core of it. And I think we have to understand that anti-blackness is the core of, of, of what we've had as a system. And... And, and the whole history of the country is about taking all those other groups and playing them off against black people, including those white ethnics, Italians, Irish, Jewish folk, and actually saying, like, who you want to get down with, them or us? Because when the Irish came, they were told when they left Ireland, you are to join the abolitionist struggle because we were the slaves of the English. Right. And what did the Irish do when they got here? Well, some of them decided to join the abolition struggle and some of them decided to burn the orphanage on 43rd Avenue in New York City because it was filled with black children and they wanted to let you know they were not going to go to the Civil War to fight for the end of slavery. So every... Every era has been about playing off all these different groups and making sure they knew you don't throw down with these people, meaning black people. So it's not just a white-black issue, but we have to understand the core of anti-blackness that's at the heart of the history of the country, for sure. Yeah. Last one for the road, brother. How you doing? Kasim Bagani, fellow Nashville native. I got a very straightforward question. Let's say we have 20 years mm -hmm. to actually move the needle. Yeah. Earlier you mentioned policymaking may not be it. Right. Hell-raising may be it. Yeah. What's the one thing black folks can do to actually move the needle and the one thing white folks can do to move the needle i think in some ways it's the same thing i think it is about it is about realizing that our children are the targets of those who want to end multiracial democracy as a possibility and they will stop at nothing to propagandize our children to turn our children against one another, to create a doubt that multiracial democracy is even possible. So our job, whether it's black folks or white folks or any folks, is to make sure that we are, we are raising our children, that we are teaching our children what, what the schools ought to be teaching but cannot be trusted to teach, what, what the government ought to be saying but cannot be trusted to say. Right? We have to do that. Our, our children are fundamentally ours to educate first and foremost. And so part of it is ensuring that they are immune, or at least as close to immune as possible, to the nonsense that is coming from people in positions of power. Um, there's a lot of other things we can do, but I think that, that on a day-to-day -day basis, right, that is the thing. We can do that in our own homes. We can do that in our own churches and synagogues and mosques and institutions. And, and so that's the thing, is, is organizing where you are. We sometimes think big. It's like, well, we got to have a march or a demonstration or a sit-in. Those are great. But some of that stuff is performance. On a day-to-day -day basis, it isn't about being in the streets all the time. It's about what are you doing when the doors are closed and you're home and, and you know, your kid is, 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 is playing a video game or whatever they're doing. Like, that's cool. Diversions are fine, but it's also time to learn some stuff, right? It's also time to be like, hey, you know, I mean, the Panthers, one of the things the Black Panthers did that was so important was they did popular education. That You know, you had folks in the neighborhood that would come in two, three times a week and learn about the history of the country. 
Like, and this was some of the poorest communities in places like Chicago. Fred Hampton would just gather, Mark Clark would just gather people and they would just have popular education, learning about the stuff the schools weren't doing it. In Mississippi, they set up freedom schools in Freedom Summer 1964 because they shut down in Mississippi schools for black kids. They didn't want black kids going to school with white kids. So they'd like, after eighth grade, they would just shut down the high schools. And so you had organizers come and set up freedom schools, teach black history, teach, you know, these things that otherwise were being missed. That's revolutionary stuff, right? Right. Actually taking control and taking charge of our children's education in our own homes, I think, is one thing and maybe the most important thing that we can do, because that's how we grow revolutionaries. And I don't mean revolutionaries in the bomb throwing sense. I mean revolutionaries in the cultural sense, actually taking charge of the country and changing it into what it needs to be. I told you to be short. I lied. You lied. You lied. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Give it up for Tim. Tim Wise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you need, you need the water now. Yeah. You need the water. Um, I, I just want to say it's done. We're over. Y'all did an amazing job. Y'all was an amazing audience. I hope y'all enjoyed this, this show, this, this Q&A. And we definitely want to do more of this in the future because, you know, not only does the country need it, Nashville need it, Tennesseans need it. Um, and in order to do that, you all need to support MPT, support your public media. We have a survey in the back, a QR code that I'm going to encourage you. I'm a, I come from an organizer, so this is your action step, right? We never leave without giving some type of action step. So your action step is you got to scan that QR code in the back. You can do so while grabbing more pizza, but take that survey and let us know, you know, what more guests would you like to have? Uh, what other topics would you like us to talk about? What do we need to talk about? What do we need to tackle here in Middle Tennessee and Nashville being the hub of Tennessee and actually one of the hubs of the United States, as Tim mentioned, when it comes to social change? Like, we're one of those meccas, and we got to start wearing that with pride. And as a Nashvilleian myself, that's what I love to do and I love to explore. So scan that QR code. Support your local MPT PBS station, donate, become a member, all of those things, right? And you can do all that. It's QR codes to get all that information. So I'm challenging you. That's your action step. If you don't do it, you failed. It's over. You're not a good person. So uh, thank you all again. Can we just give it up one more time for Tim? Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. No, I appreciate it.